You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's just you and me. It is just you and me. We don't need those Party other Central people. Party Central in here, yeah. just you no, and me. We're fine. Um, <laughs> no, we're yeah, People uh, associated with the show are either... About to have babies, have had babies, uh, travelling, it's all... Yeah, all happening. There's, and there's no simple excuses. No. No, everything's no. pretty legit. I'd yeah, love to no. call them out on it, but they're all pretty good. <laughs> We've got Liv doing our Twitter feed, though, and I've given her a microphone because we had a spare. How are you, Liv? I'm good. How are you? How's our Twitter feed going? Yeah, it's awesome. Awesome. Excellent. Get behind us, folks, if you can. Now, uh, we've got some great guests coming in later today. For now, we're going to dive into some science news because it's been a pretty big week, hasn't it? It some has good been stuff. a big week. Yeah, there's some good stuff going on. There's some interesting stuff going mm. on around the world as as well, which, you know, makes for some interesting science. Yeah, I don't always say that. People, no. But long, long-term listeners of the show will know that there are times where I just say, it's been a crap week yeah. in science. Like, <laughs> scientists seem to have done nothing this yes. week. But this week's been a good week. Yeah, so no, there's some What have you stuff. got for us, Dr. Well, Amy? look, I thought I'd do a bit of a story on um, elections and polling, because... I'm sure, unless you've been living under a rock, you will know that the US mm. election is next week. Pretty scary stuff. Um, next Tuesday. So keep an eye out for that. We should get the results Wednesday morning. I'm also a bit of a, poli- a political science nerd as well. I do like yeah. keeping an eye on these things. And I really like keeping an eye on the polls. Um, so, you know, polling gives you an indication of what might happen in an election. Yeah, vaguely. Um, yeah, vaguely. <laughs> but no, actually, usually, um, up until the last couple of years, actually, polling's been pretty accurate and people mm. have these fancy new statistical methods and statistical models of pulling a whole bunch of different polls together and, and you know, they have uh, generally... You've got margins of error within the polls, but the polls have been, um, broadly speaking, correct. Maybe... Um, outside Australia, I'm talking mostly as well. And I'll, I'll say why that is in just a second. But recently, there have been some uh, monumental stuff-ups with polls. Right. I'm talking the UK election from 2015. Mm-hmm. I'm talking Brexit. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking Donald Trump's nomination to the Republican Party. Right. All of those uh, polls that were in the lead-up to those elections or, or nominations or whatever you want to call them were all wrong. Very, very wrong. And a lot of uh, political science at the moment are are scrambling, saying, well, why why are they so wrong? We're we're Mm. polling people, we're we're doing these with the methods we've always done. Surely this should give us an accurate representation of how people are voting. Well, the question is not anymore. And there was a really interesting article in New Scientist this week about this, and particularly in the run-up to the US election. Um, So, first of all, why are polls important? Well, they do things like influence financial markets. I don't know if you've seen the news uh, in the last few weeks, but when Hillary's Mm. been in front for the US election, the US markets have gone (laughs) up. Um, And when Donald Trump's uh, come back, they've gone down. Particularly the Mexican peso is the one to look at as well. I think military sales are going up. Yes, yes, something like that. Exactly right. So, you know, these polls are really influential. Mm. Um, But the way that we... Are polling and the way that we will poll in future, I think really has to change. And that's what this article in New Scientist was about. Because when we think about polling, a lot of it's done uh, on telephone. And when I say telephone, I'm talking old school landlines, which many people don't have anymore, right? right? Because yeah, everybody yeah. has mobile phones, but you have to use landline telephones or in person, because you need to know that these people are actually living in the electorate in which you're polling. Can't right? you, what I don't understand, though, is that, like your, your phone has a GPS tracker in it essentially yeah why why can you not respond to a a poll via your phone and log your 
your location at the same time. Yeah, you but know. is your location where you're, like, is that hmm. where you're living to vote? You know, people move, Yeah, people I guess, so. um, you know, I, I suppose Brings in another source of uncertainty, yeah, yeah. I suppose. But relative to yeah, these being look. totally useless. Yeah, no, totally, <laughs> totally, totally. Look, and I mean, that's the big thing that they've been working out um, so far is, is leading to these unreliable polls. Mm. One of them is this telephone polling because, one, people don't have landlines so much anymore. Two, a lot of the polling is done during the day when you've got kind of either, um, you know, stay-at-home carers, um, usually in the United States, stay-at-home mums, retirees, unemployed. And, of course, they're a particular demographic and mm. they're going to skew the polls in a particular way. Yeah. And, of course, internet polls are the opposite. And internet polls are, of course, fraught with difficulty anyway yeah. because how do you know the person who's doing the poll is actually the person, you know, doing the poll? <laughs> um, so there's all these sorts of things um, that that make these polls more unreliable and have so in the last couple of years. But, of course, the big thing as well, not in Australia, but in the United States and the United Kingdom, is that voting is not compulsory. And so what they've found recently is a lot of people have said they will vote, yep. but they don't. Yeah. And so the polling actually reflects people's opinions about how they would vote. And, of course, they try to get an estimation of how likely that person is to vote, but the reality is whether that person actually votes or not um, has been a big thing in recent times. Yeah. And if you look at the last US election, for example, the voter turnout, I had a look at it before, was 53.6%. Huge. Almost half. <laughs> half. I mean, compare that to everywhere else in the world where yeah. it's up kind of 80 90% of the, the, yeah. the voting population. Um, so only half of the United States population um, who can vote did in the last in the last federal election over there, um, and that leads to some kind of interesting behavioural studies, um, you know, kind of science and, and psychological mm. science that, that people have done on on voting habits over the last couple of years. Um, that I'll just go into uh, quickly because what they found is that um, when people say, you know, I'll vote, they 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 often don't, um, but how do we actually get them to go and do that? How do we get them to go and vote? And and the, the, the way that people have been doing it so far is to appeal to this sense of civic duty, you know, <laughs> appeal to this sense of voting is a right and a responsibility and, you know, you should you should do it. This, this appeal to what they call in behavioural sciences, apparently, I'm not a behavioural scientist, but appeal to rational self-interest. Rational self-interest? Yes, well, we're perhaps not that rational as human beings, are yeah. we? But Look at the climate. Yeah, that's right, that's <laughs> yeah. right, that's right. So this appeal to rational self-interest. And so this is when you get those things like, you know, those videos that you see, those YouTube ads and mm. videos of celebrities going, come on, get out and yeah. vote. You know, yep. this is important. This is the biggest election of the, you know, whatever it is yeah, and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And behavioural studies... Um, Research shows that that doesn't work. Wow. It doesn't work at all. Take, um, take that, Josh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so this traditional method that people have of appealing to this sense of self-responsibility, um, yeah, is is not working. So how do you get people to go out and vote? And this this comes from a really interesting study uh, that was reviewed on one of my favourite YouTube channels this week by a guy called Nerd Writer. If anybody uh, watches him, but it was a study by uh, Gerber, Green, and Larimer from 2008 in American Political Science Review. Where they got four groups of people, um, and this was just before the 2008 election, I think, and they basically sent did different strategies to try and get this group of people out to vote. So the first one was this traditional appealing to rational self-interest, sent, sent them a pamphlet in the mail saying, hmm. it's your civic duty, go and vote, you know, and then they tested afterwards how many of them actually voted, and not many. 
you know, was right. traditional yep. kind of 50%, yeah, yeah. whatever it yep. was. The second one was then they sent another group, uh, another set of, of pamphlets out saying, uh, you know, it's your civic duty to vote. By the way, we're doing a study. We're going to assess whether you voted or not after the election um, because voting over in the United States is actually a matter of public record. So you can mm. find out if somebody actually voted or not, as opposed to whether they just said they voted. So that's the big brother method? Yes, exactly. Yep. So that's the bigger bro- big brother method. But they just said, look, the researchers would, would mm. look at that. Uh, it doesn't say how you voted, I should say. It just says that yeah. you did or you didn't. Okay. So the third one was that they sent out uh, an individual's own voting record. So they say, you should go and vote. Here, you voted once in the 2008 election, once in the 2012 election, uh, whatever, you know, and people go, okay, I did vote here, I didn't, maybe I should go out and vote. Didn't increase voter turnout by that much. What did increase voter turnout by quite a huge amount was when they sent people the neighbours' voting records as well as their own. So people could see who (laughs) had voted in their street. I know, the ethical ethical considerations of this are a bit, you know, voter shaming and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, the point was when people knew that others had voted and they hadn't or, you know, vice versa, um, that increased voter turnout by something like 8%, which actually was a huge effect in the study. And it goes to a whole bunch of other research which also shows... Um, that basically saying things like, oh, it's an important election doesn't help. Saying things like, yes, it's going to be a big voter turnout actually does help because mm. when people see other people voting, they want to be involved too. Yeah. So it's really interesting appealing to these kind of behavioural um, yeah, behavioral traits and, and how people operate. Cause well, we, we did the, that in Victoria here when we were trying to stop people watering their driveways. Yeah, that's remember. right. And I, I, as someone told me, I'm not sure if this is true or not, that no one ever got fined for that. Oh, really? But... The sort of public backlash from your neighbours and yeah. so forth when shaming people look by this sh- public shaming <laughs> was enough to stop people doing it. Yeah, that's and, right. And, you know, it's that's sort of right. one of those things where you think, well, it would be nice if people just understood why this was yeah. stupid. Yeah, but the rational... But, the but rational you know, sometimes part, we don't think that way. Right. And um, anyway, so what we'll see... The, of course, the other way to get them to vote is to find them if they don't. Yes, well, just exactly. Just make it that compulsory. But, compulsory um, voting, but they don't do that yeah. in most countries, only here. And, so. you know, we have a few American listeners, I think, to yeah, the show. Yeah, that's and right. To, to, our, to our lovely American listeners, I say, it's not too late to call this off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good yeah, luck. Yeah. Um, yes, not so great. All right. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about memory because um, a, a piece of research came out in the journal Current Biology on the 3rd of November, which is very interesting, and it relates to how we form memories. And let me talk first just about this particular type of protein. Um, there are these proteins which can sort of switch shapes, so they can change from one form to another fairly rapidly and then accumulate as a res- after that happens. And this is sort of one of the, you may have heard this term prion before. It's a, essentially a type of protein that does this sort of stuff. And wh- one of the things that happens inside a fruit fly, you know, always, you know mm-hmm. we're so, humans are so <laughs> similar to <laughs> fruit flies, That's right. um, is that these, these particular shape-changing proteins are actually very important in terms of formation of memory and recall of that memory. And, in fact, what what happens in a fruit fly's um, brain is there's this particular sort of protein called Orb2, and what happens is it changes shape when when there's a necessity to form a memory, and that helps it accumulate, and then you're able to extract that memory as a result of that. So they've they've kind of nailed down this this happening in fruit flies and and a few other very small um, organisms as well. 
The interesting thing is we actually, as humans, actually have something, you know, very similar to this ORB2 protein. So we have something similar, not quite the same, but very similar. And it, it's interesting what, what you can do is you can actually switch, um, you can apply some other chemicals to the fruit fly that sort of switch this thing off and sort of stop it working properly. And when you do that, um, what happens is um, some interesting effects in the fruit flies. So um, the way they did this was they looked at male fruit flies and their need to find a mate. And I wasn't aware of this, but you know, after trying for a while, you start to remember that that mate doesn't want you okay. right, in a fruit fly. And so if you've got the right amount of this particular faulting pro- uh, this changing protein, then you lay down those long-term memories and you think, oh, well, she's not into me. I'm Had a go before, move, didn't move work. on, move Let's on. Go. I've been rejected yep. three times, yep. move on. Yep. Um, if they dull down this particular activity in the brain of the fruit fly, the males just keep going back. And they, <laughs> they, they, kinda, they, don't, they don't get the point. And they don't realise that, oh, you know, maybe, maybe she's just not into me. Well, actually, that's because I can't remember that she's just not into me and every time's a new time. Oh, so that's able, really sad. Yeah, so, I, I know, it's kind of, kind of, kind of cool. Um, but anyway, so, so what they can do, though, is that they can actually apply a, another um, a chemical called uh, Triple J2, which actually enhances uh-huh. the effects of this orb to, in its ability to switch shapes and laying down or sort of accumulating and when they do that it actually makes these flies kind of sharper you know they're they're, now this is so we have to be very clear here in what it does it does not make these flies super memory flies like they don't just start remembering you know beethoven's fifth um however what they can do is retrieve their long-term memories quicker and those long-term memories seem to be more effectively laid down so it means that when they go after the mate they remember uh, much faster actually Mm. that they've done this before and and maybe i should so they only get halfway there before they go oh hang on a second i remember that one she she doesn't like me um so now the the reality is here what's happening is these long-term memories in this case are already being formed anyway. What these additional chemicals do is they just say, oh, okay, we'll, we'll make it easier for that to happen. But the circumstances for the formation of the memory have to be there. Yeah. So that's why I say it doesn't mean that you can suddenly turn this yeah. fly into Mozart. Yeah. Um, it just means those existing memories that were going to be laid down anyway are, are definitely going to be laid down. So the chance of it is better and the recall of them is better. Mm. So And, and, and that's it's something that's very um, specific to, to this particular treatment. So what this means, of course, is that when you look at um, human um, diseases of the brain like Alzheimer's mm. where you have a, have a memory problem, there's the possibility that if, if this sort of work in flies can be translated to mm. other higher higher life forms, then, then there's the chance that this might give us a better understanding of how memories are laid down and how to perhaps make them more effective at being laid down once some of the conditions for them are, are being, um, being targeted by these illnesses. So it's, it's interesting work. I, I find it fascinating yeah, they can do this on a fly. It's, it's, it's great stuff. But it does give a, a clearer picture as to how these, how these memories are being formed and why they're being formed in such a specific way. So, yeah. Now, we might uh, take a break and we'll come back. We'll, we'll probably have a little bit of news later in the show today because um, we don't have quite as many guests as normally. We, we only have three, um, but still, it's all going to be fun. We're going to play a track for you folks and we're back in, in just a few moments. We're talking to a, uh, well, a, a guy from the School of Earth and Atmospheric and Environmental Sciences at Monash University and it's going to be all about uh, evolution of planets. So that's pretty cool stuff. Hang in there. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio now we have Dr. Andrew Langendam, who is from the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. Andrew, welcome to the RRR studios. Thank you for having me. Look, it's great to have you in because um, one of our favourite topics here is planets in the solar system, so other, mm-hmm. a- a- any star system for that matter. I don't discriminate. I, I like, to, <laughs> like to treat them all separately. Um, but um, before we get into your studies on all of that stuff, I might quickly have a chat to you about the meteorite you've been trying to find yeah, in the crowdfunding yeah. campaign because this, so you're just out there wandering the desert looking for black rocks I mean how does yeah, how do you so, go um, uh, Andy Tompkins who's the leader of our research group uh, mm. runs a meteorite trip out to the Nullarbor Plain every year yep. mostly the Nullarbor Plain every year um, and we go and we wander off into the desert and we try and find things that are different normally uh, a brownish blackish sort of rounded rock compared to the uh, more angular white stuff that's normally on the on the Nullarbor Plain itself and yeah, sometimes they they end up being meteorites. So okay, it's quite and, exciting. Um, I, I'm trying to visualise what this looks like. You know, I can imagine. <laughs> I, I, so I have the image, and this is probably completely wrong, of something akin to a salt lake with a with a black eight ball sitting. <laughs> is, is it? Are they as obvious as that? I mean, how? Sometimes they are. Yep. So. There's not too many salt lakes out on the Nullarbor, no, no, but course, there's, no. there's a lot of clay pans, so it's mm. very similar, except just replace the white with red. Um, and you'll, you'll sometimes have just a, a lump of uh, brown stuff sitting on that, and sometimes that ends up being a yeah, space rock, okay. and they, you can see them from a long way away. Right. Other times they tend to be hiding under a bush or hiding in a, a bit of gravel or something like that. And yet, you know, you have to, you know, they'll be a little bit smaller and you have to sort of pick them out a little bit. Okay. Now, wh- one immediate question I've always had with this stuff is why are these things on the surface? Why have they not hit the ground at a speed that would sort of, you know, dump them under a half a foot of, of earth? Yeah. So that's all dependent on the size of the rock that's coming in. Mm-hmm. So if they, if they get over a certain size, uh, say, about the size of a, a small house or something like that, okay. often they will punch right through the atmosphere Yep. Uh, depending on the angle that they come in at and they'll hit and then they'll sort of shatter and okay. and whatnot. Um, but if they're smaller than that, they tend to burn up in the atmosphere and lose a lot of their velocity. So that means that they can slow down to about terminal velocity and when they do that, they'll hit, they might break apart, but then they won't actually bury themselves in the ground okay. or make a pit or make mm. a crater. Okay, yeah, cool yeah. stuff. Now, there's a, um, a crowdfunding campaign associated with that, I understand. So yeah, right? so yep. at about the start of last year, we ran a crowdfunding campaign so we could get uh, some funds mm-hmm. for, to, run the, uh, to run the trip itself since uh, we were running out of the normal, uh, the normal avenues to get, to get funding. So yep. we decided why not try and uh, get it from everyone else rather, mm. than, rather than governments or research foundations. Yep. And it was quite successful. Um, so we made a, we made a few videos. We started talking about our research, um, you know, on on say radio shows and uh, elsewhere in in a, I think there was a couple of new, uh, newspaper articles mm-hmm. that we had yep. about it. And um, yeah, we got we got some traction. We got some people excited about it, and we ended up being able to fund our trip for two years, okay. which was really really fantastic. And it was fun just to go to places and start talking about. Um, start talking about the research we do and mm. everything. So, mm. so that means you get to go again next year. Yeah, we yeah, do. we do. And yeah. is it still open? The crowdfunding scenario uh, no, is it so, closed. Yeah, yeah. So that ran for that ran for six weeks. Yep. Um, so we ran it through a website called Possible, mm-hmm. um, yep. and they were fantastic with us. They gave us all the tools we needed. Gave us some really good advice on how to how to promote our our particular campaign and everything. Mm. And yeah. Um, 
it ran for ran for six weeks and we managed to get yeah, three times the funding we were asking for. So we were right. asking for four thousand dollars. We ended up with twelve. That's so great. That was now, really good. now I've I've got a beautiful crystal cabinet at the at home that's filled <laughs> with with rocks. So yeah. you're allowed to say that's the reason for this. But is what is the actual reason for <laughs> for going out and finding these things? I mean, what what are you trying to determine with collecting these meteorites? So meteorites are the most primitive things we have in the solar system for forming planets. Mm-hmm. So you can find meteorites from the very birth of the solar system, which are basically remnants from everything that went to make up the planets. Mm-hmm. You can also find meteorites, say, that have been knocked off the moon or knocked off some of the bigger asteroids. And you can also find them when they've been knocked off Mars. So they can tell us a lot about the planets in our solar system. They can tell us about a lot of the initial environments in that um, protoplanetary disk and mm. the chemistry of those those environments and how that can then go and make things like Earth. Mm, okay. Yeah. Uh, I do find it fascinating you can grab one of these little rocks and, and work out it's not from around here. Yeah. And it's not from the moon and it's not from these three asteroids but it's from the fourth one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, this, <laughs> this, this is pretty good stuff. I mean, you know, it is, it is a forensic task. But yeah, it's, it is. It's it one is. where... The, the the fascinating part for me is how you would go... So if you find one that's really different, yeah, how do you then determine its location? Because that's, that's presumably the one you really want to find, the one that's that's really unusual. Yeah, yeah, well, you do. You, you always want to find a new type of mm. meteorite because that'll be representative of a new asteroid or a new planet. Yeah. And it can be really hard to nail down where these things actually come from. And realistically, you need to actually send something somewhere to get some data right. from that thing. Yep. So say we've got this group of meteorites called the SNC meteorites. They're Shergatite, Naclite, Cassignite uh, meteorites. And they're from Mars. Okay. But we didn't know they were from Mars until we sent something to Mars to sample the atmosphere of Mars. Oh, right. So we sent the Viking landers yep. in the 70s. Uh, they were able to sample the atmosphere of Mars and look at the noble gas isotopic compositions of the Martian atmosphere and that matched very closely with the meteorites that we had. Hmm. So we were able to say these are most likely from Mars and then subsequent work, subsequent missions and everything have uh, allowed us to refine that and refine that. That's so cool. the fact that they come through Earth's atmosphere though, does that kind of taint them? Does it, does it you know, whatever signatures that you're getting in terms of, of the chemistry, does, that, does, does Earth's atmosphere have an influence? You kind of have to... I suppose, <laughs> rub off the top bits. <laughs> so, like, Earth's atmosphere will have a small effect, okay. but the interaction between a meteorite and the atmosphere of Earth is very, very small. Okay. So you only really, like, everyone, Hollywood would have us believe that when a meteorite lands, <laughs> yeah. it's burning hot, there's fires all around, and everything's, everything's really dangerous. Mm. It's actually more likely that you're going to find a meteorite with frost on it. Oh, really? So, That's yeah. boring, though. Yeah, it, it, it's <laughs> boring, but it's also... Fireballs. Yeah. So a meteorite will burn up very quickly, but it's that, that light show you see when yeah. something comes through the atmosphere, that's the mostly the air around the meteorite getting compressed. Oh. Right. And then that just causes erosion on the meteorite. It melts mm. a little bit, but that's normally only at most a millimetre or so, I think. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, if it, uh, I'll tell you, if I ever go on one of these things, I, I want a piece of Mars. I don't want some yeah. cra- crappy <laughs> asteroid rock. Yeah, I want something at home that I can put a little label on my cabinet that says Mars. Yeah. Or, or Mars. Not Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Just to be clear. Now, uh, Andrew, let's get on to your your actual, the the more sort of, uh, I guess, the bulk of your work, which is around the sort of birth and evolution of planets. Yes. And I assume not just in our solar system, but in in general. Um, Now, you you look at the sort of the composition in terms of of water and CO2 and so forth and where that sits. Uh, I I mean, obviously, because of the the sort of life potential of those planets. I mean, when, when you look at a solar system like ours. Yeah. 
how do you i mean how do you picture that how do you describe the differences between the inner planets the outer planets and so forth in, in so, this sense, sense? A lot of it's down to what they formed with. Mm. So Earth, when it formed, was a very dry place. We got a lot of our water from things coming into us and hitting us later on. Okay. So the, the part of the protoplanetary disk we formed in uh, was, was a lot warmer than other parts of the solar system, say, where Jupiter formed mm. and where its moons formed. Yep. So, and that's all just dependent on the temperature. So as soon as you go far enough out, you're able to start condensing things like water ice and CO2 ice and ammonia ice and things. And then those can get put into planets themselves mm. and they can start to change the chemistry of that planet. Okay. So what I was looking at specifically was trying to compare planets that form in those sorts of water-rich environments to ones that form in uh, water-poor environments like Earth. And when you form something in that water-rich environment, it will change, say, the chemistry of the metal that is forming with it. So you'll form oxides rather than forming metal itself. Mm-hmm. And that can then change things like cores of these planets and cores are really really important because they produce our magnetic field which yeah. then protects us from the sun and all its nastiness yeah so so you find um uh, so so mars for example has almost no magnetic fields very, yeah. very low um, very earth earth though has quite a strong magnetic field is that surprising given given what i mean i would expect the outer planets by your description would have stronger magnetic fields or or is it the other way around so the, the outer planets so jupiter mm. saturn uh, Uranus and Neptune, they all have very strong magnetic mm. fields. Mm. And is that because this, this water and so forth with metals, you can form these different cores? Uh, no, not so much. It's because they're big enough to have things like um, metallic hydrogen within them. And okay. they, you know, they, they were able to accrete gases mm-hmm. uh, as well as... They were, they were big enough to accrete gases as well as um, all the rocky bits. Earth has a magnetic field because we have a liquid iron yep. outer core. And we have that because... Um, we've been able to retain our heat yeah, for a long period warm. of time. Yeah. Whereas Mars wasn't able to do that. Mm. It sort of cooled down. It had a magnetic field very early on and it had it for maybe half a billion years and then its core froze, its magnetic field shut down and it lost all its atmosphere mm. and a lot of its water as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so this presumably this explains why when you look at, say, Jupiter's moons, for example, we seem to find a different ocean of something on one in every other yeah. day. I mean, there seems to be... An incre- yeah. I mean, forgetting Jupiter, which which is in itself a very interesting planet, but, but its moons are extraordinarily yeah. populated by these, these various fluids. That's very, very true. So, say, Europa has as much water as the Earth, even mm. though it's tiny in comparison. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, I think it's 2,000 kilometres or something in, in radius, whereas Earth's 6,000 kilometres in radius. So very big size difference, but it's got the same amount, if not more water than Earth does. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's able to retain its water because it's being protected by Jupiter's mm. magnetic field. Mm. Yeah. 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 Now, now in, so in terms of if, if we're to look, you know, we, we, so there was the recent discovery of Prox, Proxima B, yep. you know, and a lot of people getting very excited about yeah, a yeah. very, very small amount of information, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. yeah, not, not to downplay the fact that it's nice that the closest star to us has a planet that yeah. may well be in the range where you may find life and there may be li- liquid water and it may be tidally locked. You know, there's a, there's a lot there's of maybe. A lot there, of maybe's yeah. in there. Um, but when you, I mean, when you speak about these locations of where you would find water, mm-hmm. I mean, what does that mean for something like Proxima B? I mean, it's it's a smaller star. It's um, you know, there's a different heat load there relative yeah. to distance. I mean, where do you need to be in order to to, to look for life? So originally, um, it was thought that you needed to be in a sort of range where water could just be stable liquid. on the surface, mm, right? Um, as a liquid. Uh, but with the research I've done, it shows that you can 
have something that's forming a bit further out and maybe as a moon to a gas giant planet mm. or something like that, have a lot of volatiles, have a lot of water present. And then that through a whole bunch of complicated uh, physics that I don't quite really understand, uh, that can migrate closer into its star and then park itself in an orbit which might be more likely to have water on its surface. Okay. And it's more about whether then that particular moon or that particular planet can retain that water than anything else. So you can form something in a habitable zone, which is what we like to call it, that spot where you can have liquid water on the surface mm. as a stable phase. Um, but most of the time when you're forming things in the habitable zone of a star, they're going to be relatively dry. Yeah. Um, whereas if you can form it further out and bring it in and then just sit it there, that's going to be... That that's going to help things on a mm. little bit more. Mm. So you're going to form like a water world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. water world. <laughs> There's a film there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just had a flashback. Yeah. It wasn't good. Don't yeah. want that um, back. <laughs> it, it, I find it fascinating stuff, and I, I always remind people that um, I think both. Well, I'm not sure about Venus, but definitely Mars is in the habitable zone of our solar yeah. system. And it ain't looking too fresh. No, no, um, that's very true, and know, that's because it doesn't have a magnetic, magnetic field. field yeah. yeah. So with the the moons, you were saying they might form. Oh, sorry, might form around <laughs> um, you know one of the gas giants or something like that, yeah. and then and then be pulled further in. So the the risk there though is that they can't maintain their own magnetic field. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So they're less that's likely to be. Yeah, but then again. Ganymede has a magnetic field as well, and that's oh. that's the biggest moon in the solar system. Okay, mm. so they can, it's moons actually bigger, can have yeah, their own. Yeah, yeah. okay. And it's, it's so big, it's bigger than some of the planets. Yeah, it's, it's bigger yeah. than Mercury. Mercury, so yeah. It's this huge thing. Mm. It's got these um, it's got these oceans within it, and it's currently thought that that particular magnetic field is made by salt huh. within the planet itself. Right, there we go. But it could be that it's made by some sort of liquid core. We don't mm. know. Mm. That's very, very you know, hand wavy and everything, but it could be there's a heat source there, which is the whole tidal flexing that, that Ganymede goes through, through its orbit around its gas giant, about, mm. around Jupiter. Fascinating yeah. stuff. So, the, the moons of Jupiter, I just say, get back out there. There's yeah, some, there's there's some so really cool stuff yeah. out there. So and, um, yeah. Yeah, every time you see a photograph of another one, there seems to be something exploding from the surface. Yeah. Incredibly, <laughs> I mean, we saw this with Pluto as well, though, you know, the, yeah. the dynamic nature of these outer solar system objects yeah. is what it, we would normally think of with Earth, yeah, um, mm. and what we don't really see with Mars, um, but we do see with these other planets, especially with the moons of these other planets, yeah. which is just fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. Andrew, thanks so much for coming in. It's a, it's, no it's great chatting to this, and good luck the next time you go looking for meteorites. And if you find a bit of Mars, bring it back. We'll take it off your hands. <laughs> I might come back in and show you. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds great. Um, Dr. Andrew Langenden uh, is from the School of Earth, Atmosphere, and Environment at Monash University. We're going to take a short break for some music, and we'll be back in a moment. We're going to be talking about an interesting megafauna dig that's coming up soon. You're listening to 3 R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to 3 R. It's Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us is Sonia Van Hewitt and Rebecca Ballard, who are both from Deakin University. Welcome to Triple R. Hi, Shane. How you going? Thank you for having us. Now, it's great to have you guys in. Um, Sonia, you're a paleontologist. We don't get many paleontologists on the show, so welcome. It's good to Thank talk you. about this sort of stuff. And you're going to be running a, a particular fossil dig uh, in mid-November, so I guess a week or so away, up in Lansfield. 
Tell us, what's the purpose of this particular dig? It started off as a demonstration dig for the Lansfield Megafauna Festival, which okay. is a community festival at Lansfield. It was run first time last year, mm-hmm. um, and we did an augering program then. So um, this year we decided we'd try and do a bigger dig mm-hmm. um, and get people to come and have a look. School groups can come and visit while we're doing it and have a look and see what real paleontologists do in the field. Right. And the Megafauna Festival is running on the Saturday, but we're running from the Monday before the festival right through to, and then closing up on the 27th. Okay. But it's going to be part of a bigger... Um, I suppose it's like a collaborative event. We're going to run this over five years. Uh, Deakin University are now um, collaborating with uh, South Australian Museum mm-hmm. uh, and uh, University of Adelaide, La Trobe University, Monash University, Melbourne University. We've got experts coming from everywhere. Great. Going to put their two cents worth of things in because we want to find out what's really happening with this mm. dig area. It's a very contentious area. It's, they've got a lot of research done on it. Okay. And, and, I mean, that was my next question. Why Lansfield? I mean, what's, what's there that is so specific that you have the right conditions to presumably dig up some really cool stuff? We've got this great swamp. Okay. Which is currently underwater. <laughs> so it's currently it's, underwater. Yeah, stop raining. Please stop raining. Yep. Um, it's a, it's a big swamp environment. It's about the size of a football oval. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of megafauna, which are mega big fauna mm. animals, a lot of big extinct animals dated between about forty and 60,000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, 10,000 individual animals are estimated to be in the swamp. I don't think wow. we've dug all of them up yet. There's still quite a few in there. There's three different sites. Um, and we really don't know why they're there. Now, there was a recent paper by Dorch et al. Uh, this year in Quaternary Science Review. And they said that it could be a combination of water hole tethering and what they call fluvial coming in with and reworking with um, water. Um, yes, but that's very site-specific. Only people have ever done just very site-specific thing, never a whole area. Mm-hmm. So while I'm a paleontologist and I like the bones, I'm more interested in why they're there. And mm. that's the taphonomy part. That's a different type of science. Mm. So, um, yeah, so that's why it's collaborative because we've got a lot of different people coming in to do things. And, and, and what about the conditions at this site? I mean, as you say, it's obviously there's water there at the moment. Oh, so swamp, presumably yeah. it's a, you know, you, you can imagine animals going to a location where there's water. I can get that. Um, but there has to be very specific conditions with the soil and so forth to preserve these things in the way that's you know able to be excavated later i mean what what are the conditions there that are so favorable uh well there's clays and when you dig the clays up they actually come up very green and after a while they oxidize because that's what happens to the exposed so because they're in an anoxic environment the fossils that are in there are preserved beautifully when the fossil dries out, they start to crumble, so they do have to be preserved very carefully. So mm-hmm. it's not only the moisture that's kept them, but it's the lack of oxygen that's actually started degrading right. the material. Right. Yeah. One of the important things about the dig is that there was um, a couple of Aboriginal heritage tools that have been found, not in association with the bones themselves, but in association with the area. Mm-hmm. So it now has a cultural heritage overlay over it as well, which is why we're collaborating with La Trobe Uni, because they're the archaeologists and they're going to be overseeing... Um, the archaeological part of the dig while we oversee the paleontological part of the dig. So 
Yeah. Interesting. Now, Rebecca, you're um, you're a second year student at Deakin, undergraduate yes. student. How are you involved in in this particular project? I've kind of been roped in. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's a, it's just it's been wonderful as an experience as a student to be involved from the ground up because I've never been involved with the dig before. I've seen them on TV and stuff like that, but never actually been involved with the organising and the actual acting out of the dig. So mm. it's been great. I've had opportunities to talk to all sorts of people and meet lots of interesting people, but also just to um, have hands-on experience with with organising it, knowing what equipment we need and what um, all the the workers are going to need and things like Mm. that. And then actually how to handle the fossils when we find them, like the process that we need to go through in washing them and preserving them and making sure that they're catalogued well and things like that. So all these ground root stuff that are behind the scenes that we don't normally know about, it's been great. Yeah. Now, um, Sonia, I I wanted to sort of get a flavour of how the dig actually operates because at one end I can imagine a shovel and at the other end I can imagine a brush. I mean, how do you go about doing the, you know, we we use the term a dig, but how do you actually go about, you know, pulling this stuff out of the ground? I mean, what's involved? If it was a purely paleontological dig, Mm -hmm. um, and we know that the bone bed starts at approximately a metre underground, we would get an excavator to remove the topsoil. Now, because it's got a cultural overlay, there will have to be a different way of actually Mm -hmm. doing it. But in a paleontological dig, you remove the topsoil, you then block out one metre squares and you excavate each one of those. And when you find a bone, you actually um, have to measure the paleo direction, which way the bone is actually pointing. If it's pointing horizontally or vertically as well, um, you collect material from around it because sometimes you get bones which are as big as a leg and then sometimes you get bones which are as tiny as a fingernail. So you have to allow for all of that and then you pull them out and then you prepare them so you'd wash them from the mud and then you'd either wrap them or you'd soak them in some sort of thing like that so to to preserve them and they'll all be going to museum victoria eventually Mm -hmm. which is also one of the collaborative partners we've got for the dig Mm. and and, and can you tell easily you know when you look into what what was formerly or still is in parts clay can can you tell what's bone and what's clay? I mean, oh, I know yeah. with some, you know, with some of the older stuff, you know, it, it, you know, some of the dinosaur stuff, it's hard to tell some of this what what's what. I mean, is it easier with these particular materials? Yeah, it actually looks like bone. You can okay. see it. The, the clay is a different colour, right. and while and the bones are slightly off colour, but they've got a distinctive shape. Whereas clay is just clay. Mm. Yeah. Clay is just clay. Yeah. So that's that's my question. I mean, you talk about these as fossils, and, and I kind of think of dinosaur fossils rather than the megafauna mm. fossils, um, which have gone through a process of, of mineralisation. I'm assuming. Whereas these ones are quite a lot younger than than say the the hundreds of million year old dinosaur fossils. So I'm presuming they haven't gone through that. Mineralisation there's, mm, there's, there's a couple of different... Um, some, of, some of the pracs I've been teaching at Deakin are looking at the different mineralisations on bones, and mm. I've used Lansfield ones. The ones that were permanently below the water, um, the groundwater level mm-hmm. are very, very mineralised. They're very yeah. heavy. They're like stone. But those that are in that sort of like... Because the groundwater level actually changes depending on drought mm. conditions and everything. There's some that are coming from a slightly higher in the bone bed mm. and they're almost like real tooth. They're actually still hollow. Um, they've still got the enamel and everything like that. So they haven't undergone that intense mineralisation. So the so mineralisation process, that happens quite quickly to happen over 60,000 years, though. It does. Wow, I yeah. didn't realise it was that quick. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's extraordinary stuff. Now, you also are looking to help raise funds uh, to actually Absolutely. fund the dig. I mean, it's interesting. I always find... Um, 
you know, when, when I hear this, it always it bothers me a bit that these things are there's such a, a treasure trove of, of history just waiting to be dug up effectively. And, and the idea that we don't really put enough resources into into that sort of science is disturbing. Uh, I mean, how do you fund this, this dig and, and what are you looking for in terms of people's help? Well, um, the first thing is that the Megafauna Festival is um, helping a little bit uh they've they've donated t-shirts to us and there's um a couple of guest speakers that are going to be at the megafauna festival um one of them being tim flannery Mm -hmm. um and one of the things we've got a chuffed account for the lansfield dig and uh we either get um you can spend five hundred dollars and get to have dinner with tim flannery and get a couple of tickets to his talk which is coming up um, for $500, I'll go out to a local primary high school or um, a local community group and I'll talk on anything from women in science through to fossils, dinosaurs. I'm, I know a bit about dinosaurs, yep. megafauna, whatever. Or I'll do a hands-on activity with a single class. Hmm. Uh, we're selling signed T-shirts. Uh, so, And that would be signed by myself, uh, Tim, Gillian Garvey and Danielle Claude. Uh, and for a smaller donation, there'll be a certificate saying thank you. Mm. So, yeah, and we're also um, hoping for gold coin, do- gold coin donations. That's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, when you go to the dig and uh, if you want to go on one of the tours of the dig, uh, it's a gold coin donation. Yeah. I think it's, it's such a pity that the $5 coin was not put oh, into wider oh, production. Yeah. You know, you hear about these gold coin donations, but yeah. it's it's a static problem. And you won't yeah. lose the $2 too because well, they're tiny. Yeah, well, but $2 do. is not what, you know, <laughs> no, back, no, no, back no, in the day, you know, 15 yeah. years ago, $2 yeah. felt pretty good, but now it's not as much no, money. we anymore. need a $5 coin. We need a $5 coin for these, for these very purposes. Yeah. <laughs> well, if 50 people put $5 in, we can feed the volunteers. That's great. That's, that's what we're looking for. We're just looking to feed the volunteers and get enough sand to fill the sandbags so we can then refill the dig yeah. so we can find it again. That's, that's the other thing. Yeah. Once we've done something, we want to come back over a period of time. Yeah, no, that's very important. And, and I can tell you, you know, as a, as a station that's filled with volunteers, feeding the volunteers does keep them happy. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, Liv is uh, tweeting out the details of the dig uh, that you've given us as we speak, I hope. I think, yep, she is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, look, uh, thanks so much for coming in and, and chatting to us about this. And, and, and good luck. I mean, this is really, um, it's excellent that we're doing this. And I think there's so much in Australia that still hasn't been unearthed yet. And um, and, and as you say, it's, it's an Aboriginal side of interest as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so pulling all that together and maybe working out what caused all these animals to accumulate in this one spot. 10,000, you said. A, a minimum of 10,000 has been estimated for that site. I don't think we've got, I think we've got about 2,000 out so far. I think we've wow. got a few more to come. Wow. About the size of the MCG kind of site. Uh, it could be about that size. Yeah, look, we're not we're not sure. That's one of the things we're looking Jeez. at to see if it is bigger really or like not. like a Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. Paleontology. Yeah. Taking them in. Lansfield, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for chatting to us and uh, and good luck. So Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Sonia Van Hewitt and Rebecca Ballard are both from Deakin University and working on the uh, mid-November Lansfield Megafauna Dig, which is running from the 21st to the 26th of November, and we'll put the information on that dig on our Twitter feed and our website. We're going to take a short break for some music and we'll be back in a moment with just a little bit more science news before we let you go and do other things you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia we have a little bit more news for you folks we're not going to let you off the hook that easy um i found something that was fascinating we we're talking about paleontology yeah. we go about two guests and, I, and, and it was interesting because i found this piece of news that actually came from the university of cambridge over the last sort of week and it was about um the idea of a fossilized chunk of bone um essentially which was not quite bone it was brain 
brain. Yeah, so this seems to be the first sort of chunk of petrified oh. brain tissue um, that's been discovered. And they, they found it in southern England in this sort of tidal pool, which I, I guess a, a tidal pool, I mean, I'm not up on this stuff. A tidal pool is a pool that forms due to the, uh, the high due tide. The, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep. And then when the tide goes out, the pool gets the left and pool, stuff's yep, left in exactly. there. Right. So I'm not that, <laughs> not that half-baked. Um, anyway, this thing's about 133 million years old, so a bit older than the megafauna fossils we were talking about a moment ago. But uh, when you, you'd say, well, how do you know it's brain? If you actually have a look at this picture, it kind of just looks like a, a bit of rock. Oh, really? I mean, it's amazing that they can pull these things out and work out what they are. But what you do find, of course, in a brain is that wrinkled structure that we're all aware of, you know, this sort of wrinkly mm. aspect of the brain and the, the very intricate nature of blood vessels and so forth mm. in the brain. And, and when, you, when you start to look at the sort of high-resolution imaging, so brain scan um, imaging and so forth of of this particular rock, you can see all these weird sort of tubular structures um, that confirm that it is actually a very, very detailed part of the anatomy. So it's not, you know, just... So it's not just little worms that are burrowed into... It's not just bone, into, no. Uh, yeah. And... Um, and there's all these sort of branching points and so wow. forth, um, which which appear. I mean, you, you know, it's it's hard to make a. Yeah, I mean, to be fair to to the scientists involved, it's 133 million years yeah. old, so they're doing the best they can. Um, but it appears as though these are sort of the blood vessels which have then been, um, you know, turned into rock. I mean, how does that even happen? Because that organic matter, you, you would presume, would break down relatively quickly. Yeah, and I, I suppose it depends on what leaches into that matter yeah, before before right. it all breaks down. Right. If you have enough of the right material, it could, could sort of, that material... Kind of make a plaster cast kind of exactly, thing. Exactly, like that's yeah, the material yeah, yeah, that gets preserved. Yeah. So anyway, it's, it's, it's very interesting because um, this was um, first presented actually on the 27th of October at actually at the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, their <laughs> annual meeting in Salt Lake City. Sounds like a blast. Um, but it's, uh, it's something that really hasn't, uh, there hasn't been a lot of this. And, and we've seen a bit more soft tissue type stuff coming mm. out over the last few years as the yep. technology and the techniques are improving and, and different dig sites are being out, uh, looked at. But um, this, this was, um, they believe, uh, belonged to a herbivore, um, probably um, beryllium or hypsellospinus. That so, old chestnut. That old chestnut. <laughs> so um, interesting stuff, though, that um, we're starting to see this sort of thing. I mean, it just it just goes to show it hasn't all been dug yeah, up, folks. So, yeah, yeah, so much to find out. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. So um, now you've got something for I, the last I couple of minutes. I will very quickly talk about... Um, we're, we're going to go with this theme again of, of, of planets and moons and formation of the solar system. This oh, yeah. is actually a new workout this week from uh, the, the magazine Nature, yep. big science science magazine, from people at the University of California who were looking at the formation of the moon because there's still some unanswered questions with regards to the hypothesis of, of how the moon actually mm. formed. And so the preferred explanation at the moment for how the moon formed is something called the Big Whack. Yeah. I love that. Something hit Earth. Yeah, exactly. Bang, something hit off. Earth, exactly. Kind yep. of... And this is not a little something. This is like a Mars-sized yeah. something whacking into Earth. Um, and then the, the bits that broke off, one of the bits that broke off, then formed, formed the, moon. the moon. They think this because, you know, the stuff that's in the moon is, is quite actually similar to the stuff that's in Earth. So they think they kind of, you know, coalesced and, and smooshed together, I suppose. I like that word, smooshed. It's a good mm. scientific word. Anyway, um, so... They thought that that's what happened. But then there's a piece of that puzzle that doesn't quite fit, and that's the fact that the moon actually doesn't travel along something that we call the ecliptic. Right. Now, it's about five degrees off the ecliptic. Now, the ecliptic is basically the path that all the planets travel along. The sun 
uh, travels along it. You know, the path that we see the sun in the sky, basically all the celestial bodies travel along that path as well. Mm. The moon mm. doesn't. travels about five degrees off it. Yep. Um, and so that doesn't quite fit with this theory because I thought, well, if the, the tugging and pulling of between Earth and the sun, the moon by now, if it had broken off from the Earth, should be sitting on the ecliptic. So what's going on? So these people from the University of California basically came up with this new computer model which showed that when it uh, when this big thing whacked into Earth and broke off the moon, it actually also started the earth spinning as well get this two and a half hour days it was spinning that fast ouch yeah (laughs) so not much time to get stuff done during the day but anyway um and what they think happens is that is the complicated dynamics and 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 kind of pulling between earth and the moon has led to the earth uh being where it is now uh, and has also meant that the moon um is is five degrees off that ecliptic so Mm. it kind of answers this model anyway fits with Okay. It's, it's not inconsistent with it's complicated that theory. Stuff. So, no, it is really complicated, complicated stuff. stuff. So still lots to look into. So it, the big whack is still in play. The big whack is still in play, and it now fits with this unanswered part of the question. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, because that's been bothering me for a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Keeping you up at night. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm into this stuff. I love, yeah, no, it's Yeah, true. it's always an interesting question. Thank you so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Dr. Ailey, thanks for coming in and Thank being you. my co-pilot on this uh, show. The dynamic duo for today. Oh, mate, I don't know. We, we don't need the others. <laughs> Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. She's uh, been swearing a few times. She's had internet's problem today, but I think it's all gone out. Thanks, Liv, for doing that. I'm Dr. Shane. We will chat again next week. Until then, remember science is everywhere and have a fabulous Sunday. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.